Our text this even, evening is Revelation 11, 15 through 18. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. This is the word of God. We've reached the seventh trumpet. And it's a representation of the end. As I was reading an article the other day, I stumbled across um, an article with an interview with the uh, prolific phil- uh, uh, philosopher. I messed that up. Um, he was, he's a writer. He's, he's a, a, a professor. His name's Noam Chomsky. Perhaps you're familiar with him. In the article, he talks about uh, that he wrote his very first article was on the fall of Barcelona. This is back in 1939. And he recalled that... Um, in the midst of this, this was the, the sort of the rise, the grim rise of fascism. And he says, I haven't changed my opinion since. It's just gotten worse. And he says, due to the climate crisis, the threat of nuclear war, Chomsky says, we're approaching the most dangerous point in human history. We are now facing the prospect of destruction of organized human life on Earth. Chomsky, who has, has been a, a voice... Um, in the culture for, for many, many years is essentially saying he thinks that we are closer than ever to the end of the world. He might be right. Chomsky was also, is also an atheist, so he believes that the end of this world will be an end of a physical world, an explosion, whether that's nuclear or whether that means global warming, will eventually the, the earth will be inhabitable. But he is, sees this, this sort of idea of the world that might actually end. This passage is about the end of the world. The cultural environment that we're living with in the, in the United States uh, has never been a static thing. And what I mean by that is that it's always been a shifting and changing reality. Since the very moment this country was founded, the only constant really that we've had is change itself. And yet, there's something incredibly unique about the last two, uh, cent- uh, last two decades, specifically. So the last two decades of the 21st century, from the year 2000 to 2020, something very unique has happened. And really, w- ultimately what this is, is it's the pace and the volume have, of changes have begun to change far more rapidly. And with that, more crazy stuff has happened in the U.S., Philip Jenkins writes, uh, Philip Jenkins is a, is a cultural commentator, he's a, he's a, uh, a Christian, and he, he writes about what some of the trends he is seeing uh, in the USA, and he's a, he's a very prophetic voice. Um, he talks about the 9-11 attacks, he talks about 
the lengthy wars that sort of followed those attacks, the economic collapse of 2008, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement, the election of Obama in 2008, and the election of Trump in 2016, which on each of those elections were very, very um, important moments in our history for, various re for different reasons. The rise of the nuns, which not, not the Catholic ladies, okay, but the nuns are those who, whenever they mark uh, on a, um, a, a, they're taking a survey, they would say that they are not affiliated with the religion, so they are a nun. Um, there's a secularization of society, there's the acceleration of the techno uh, technology, uh, in fact, I was just looking it up, in 2001 was when the first iPod was released, do you remember that thing? Had a little spinny wheel. And like the very first one, I remember it didn't even like it didn't have color. It just it was black and white. There weren't videos. It was it was really this big heavy brick of a thing. Imagine in 2001 seeing this incredible iPod to look ahead 20 years to see the phones that we have now. It would be mind blowing how fast technology has progressed in such a short amount of time. With the rise of social media, this was a, a new phenomenon in the 21st century. So with Facebook, which eventually became Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat and TikTok and this constantly changing thing in the ways in which we engage with each other from a distance, it's changed our collective psyche. It's changed the way we think and connect with each other. There have been massive shifts in attitudes and gender and sexuality Things that 20 years ago were not controversial in the way that they are today. There's the debate on climate change that wasn't really a conversation 20 years ago, that now it seems to be some movies are being made about it left and right, and it seems to be a super important issue. Jenkins writes this in his book. He says, what we can say confidently is the last two decades have been among the most momentous in the American story and represents a far-reaching change in our nation's consciousness. But here's the thing. He wrote that in 2019, which means he wrote this thing before things got really crazy. In 2020, when the pandemic hit, when we had a contentious election followed by riots and, and all kinds of chaos in our country, the economic collapse that followed the pandemic, all of these things packed into basically a two-year period. Now we're experiencing the war in Ukraine and the threat of uh, inflation and high gas prices, and it just seems like everything is going crazy. It's almost as if we lived through the fastest changing and crazy 20 years in history, and now these last two years have been just as crazy in that short of a time. A friend of mine put it this way. He says, it's like we're living through the economic crisis of the 30s, the civil rights protests of the 60s, the Spanish flu of 1918, and experiencing war all at the same time. You can imagine how that sort of works its way into our uh, overall anxiety as a nation. How all of us, when we engage with the news, when we look out into what's going on, how that can really affect and sort of sear our conscience when we think about the world around us. Are we coming to the end of the world? I had, I had a, a meeting, like I mentioned a few weeks ago, I had the offer on the table. If anyone disagreed with some of my eschatology, I'd be happy to meet with, for coffee. 
And so I met with these really nice ladies at Livingston's last week, just a few days ago, actually. And uh, as, we're, as we're talking and I'm trying to share my perspective, their perspective, one lady looks at me and he says, starts listing off all these things, like there's going to be one currency, there's going to be, um, you know, there's possible that we may see the Antichrist. Like, don't you, don't you think that we are in the end of days? And I thought long and hard about the question, how to answer it. You know, I thought, well, maybe perhaps those who were living through a world war thought they were in the end of days, perhaps those who were living through the Spanish flu. But I said, you know, we might be. What I do know is that Jesus tells us that nobody knows the hour but the Father himself. No one knows when it's going to happen, but the fact that it is going to happen is a reality that we're going to see in the text tonight that there will be an end. I don't know when it's going to be. I don't know if we're close or if it's going to be hundreds of years from now or thousands of years, but I know that there is an end. John is very, very clear about that. This letter, the book of Revelation, and specifically in this vision, the wrapping up with the seventh trumpet, I think is an incredible encouragement for all of us who maybe are wrestling with some of that anxiety. If we're wrestling with this this sort of stress and, and carrying the weight of all the things that are happening that are out of our control, this letter is actually an encouragement to us in the midst of all that. Um, whenever Betsy and I are going to have people over to our house, it really we really need to plan because uh, my three kids are just monsters and they... I love them to death, but they, they, they just make everything dirty. They spill things. They don't pick up after, after themselves. And our house is kind of, you know, ultimately like, it looks like a tornado just ripped through it some days. But we love having people over. And so it is a very strategic thing. It's, I'm, I've got this room, this room, and this room. Betsy's going to clean the bathrooms because she's good at that. I'm not good at that. She knows what I can do, what I can't do. So, you know, she sets it up so that we can work well together. And we have to get everything ready for the guests who are going to join us so that the house doesn't look horrible. It's a team effort. Here's the thing. We know Jesus is coming. We know that at some point he will return. We see this prophesied by Jesus himself. We see it in this book of Revelation many times. We see it with the seventh trumpet. We know that Christ is coming again, but we do not know the time or when it will be. And so, my point and sort of the big idea that I want us to wrestle with before I dive into the details of the text is that all of us must be ready at all times because we do not know when this is coming. It should create in us a sense of urgency to be able to sense and follow the mission that has been given to us because ultimately we don't know when things are going to end. We are awaiting a moment that we really cannot predict. Revelations 11 15 through 19 is a description of the seventh trumpet judgment. And so we're going to look at it today. If you would, would you pull that uh, passage up for me? The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Some contend um, that these verses don't actually describe the content of the seventh trumpet, but rather anticipate it so that it's going to come. 
um, that actually the content of the seventh trumpet is what we're going to learn in a few weeks when we go through the seven bulls, okay? So it's almost like saying, this is, you're going to hear more about this when we get there. Um, they argue that these verses portray not action, but rather songs or hymns of the rain. But I, I'm not so sure. I, I wrestled back and forth with this because these verses do pertain or have some action in them. Um, a song or a hymn can depict the content of a woe or a trumpet judgment as easily as a vision can. So in the previous trumpets, we had more of these visions. We don't really get that here. We get something a little bit different. We see that um, we see him speak as if from an earthly perspective. Okay, so he uses the phrase from heaven. So he hears the voices from heaven. The loud voices are either the angelic uh, a- angels worshiping God, um, or maybe the saints that are in heaven, or perhaps the 24 elders, which we're going to talk about in just a second. Um, but they're speaking and worshiping and singing praises to God. Uh, there's the declaration of what Satan, uh, that Satan formerly was a ruler, okay? Um, this is God, a lowercase God of the world in 2 Corinthians, or the prince of the power of the air, if you remember that phrase in the New Testament, or the ruler of the world. This is how Satan is described, so that Satan actually has certain authority on earth for a time. But now, in this moment, what we're seeing is that finally and wholly, Jesus has taken his reign from him. In verse 15, we read, the kingdom of the world, right? This is not singular, or this is singular, not plural. So it's not kingdoms of the world, but the kingdom of the world, which means all secular empires of the earth are actually one earthly kingdom that is ruled by Satan. But this is no longer the case. This is the final overthrow of all of God's enemies when Jesus takes the ultimate rule and reign. Interestingly, uh, Matthew 4, 8 uh, we see this moment where Jesus is in the desert. Do you remember this story? Jesus is fasting, and there's the temptation of, of Satan in the wilderness. And, and Jesus with, has to withstand these temptations, and he does so by using Scripture as a way to, to, to hold strong and not give in. And one of these moments is when Satan comes to Jesus, and he tempts him, and he says, all this, you see, all the kingdoms that you see, all, all these things that I rule over, I will give to you if you bow down to me. And Jesus withstood that temptation. But it's interesting to note that Satan had the authority, right, to even offer that to Jesus. That he was someone who had the authority to be able to be like, look, you see all this? You can have it. Which meant, for a season, he had that dominion. Uh, G.B. Caird, he's one of the commentators I've been working with, he said this, a king may be a king de jour, but he is not king de facto until the trumpet which announces his ascension is answered by the acclamations of a loyal and obedient people. Essentially, what he's saying is, look, Satan ruled for a season, but in the end, when the final trumpet comes, this was the announcement of the one true king who will reign forever. There's four little additional points that I'll point out in the text, and then um, I got a short sermon tonight, so lucky you, it won't be long tonight. Um, but a couple, couple of really interesting things in this text. One, um, there are, uh, I said earlier, the past tense has become, in verse 15, is used, this is a weird word, but it's proleptically, which means to say the future event is so certain to, to occur that it is described as a reality of the past, Okay. 
And so essentially, um, when John sees this, okay, when he's seeing these things, it, it just, it's so certain that it's happening, that Jesus will come and all this is going to take place, that he's speaking like it's already happened. It's almost as if he's, he's just assuming, yep, this is what, it's so incredible in the vision that he's like, this is what is going to happen. Second, in verse uh, 15, there's the he, it says, he will reign forever and ever. Is it God the Father? Is it um, the Lord of verse 15? Is it God the Son? Is it his Christ? Is it both? Is it considered one entity? Um, scholars have debated on this, but ultimately that's where most of them land, that it is seen as Christ will reign forever and ever, but in the form of the Trinity existing three in one, the paradox of it all. And third, there's a, a phrase parallel uh, to, the, to the he shall reign forever and ever that's found in Revelation 22. Uh, it refers to us in the new Jerusalem. God will reign forever and ever, but so will we with him. Okay, so this is, this is the good news. So what essentially is being said here is that when Christ will have his reign, this is not a period of time before the end. This is the end. This is signifying the end of the, of the earth as we know it, that there will be a new heaven, a new Jerusalem, where we will live forever with Christ's reign and rule. When we talk about heaven and its ultimate form, the new heaven and the new earth, this happens after the seventh trumpet. So the seventh trumpet is not sort of like this thing that signifies a huge apocalypse that's coming. It's saying, no, this is it. This is the end. Remember, from the first coming of Christ to the second, this signifies when all comes to an end. Finally, what this verse is not saying, and I think what you may read into it if you're, if you're um, on the surface, it's not saying that political parties and positions of earthly power will be taken over by Christians so that everything can be Christianized. That's not what, what this is describing. It doesn't make sense in the context of the fact that this is actually going to be the end itself. It describes not this present age, but the future age of eternity. Now, we go to the next part. There's the 24 elders. If you go to that next line, thank you. The 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, go to the next slide for me. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. I know you want to say who is to come, right? But there's a reason that's left out. Because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. So we have these 24 elders, okay? 24 elders resume their posture. What do they do? They're face down. The moment they're in the presence of God, they're face down. They address God as Lord God the Almighty. The word Almighty in the Greek is the same word that many Caesars and world leaders at the time would take for themselves. They would want people to call them almighty. And so what John is doing here and pointing this out is saying, look, those worldly leaders, your reign and rule has come to an end because there is only one who is truly almighty and sovereign over all. And then you'll notice the declaration, who is and who was lacks the third line and who is to come, which we see in Revelation 1, 4 and 4, 8. Why? Why is that missing? I believe because the God who is to come has come. This is it. This is the moment. This is what is predicted. This is what, uh, is what John is in his experience of all, just saying, oh no, God is here to bring it all to the end. 
The promise of ultimate victory is so powerful that John speaks of it as if it has already arrived. And it's a time for the dead to be judged and the faithful be rewarded is another example proving why I think this is at the end of history. This is the ultimate and final judgment. And then lastly, the final vision, if you go to that last section, the time has come for judging the dead, for rewarding your servants and prophets, and for your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Last section here. Is that it? Oh, shoot. We missed a verse. I'm going to pull it up because it's important. I don't know why it was left out. So there's actually one verse in verse 19, okay? This is like the apocalypse. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. So this is the Armageddon, right? This is the end. This is the the opening, and everything comes to its final consummation. What is happening here? First with the Ark of the Covenant. So you remember in the, in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant, um, it was one of those things that you could not even look at. It was one of those things that, that was said it was so holy what was inside and, and that you couldn't even look at it. So they had special instructions for the people who were carrying it so that they would not actually look at it or touch it. I remember, um, anybody seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay, I, that was the first PG-13 movie my parents let me watch. And I remember they told me at the end the moment when they all look at the ark and then their like, eyes start melting, I wasn't allowed to watch that part, but I totally peaked. I was like, had to see what it was. It's really weird. Um, but this is, this is an important point. So the Ark of the Covenant was like uh, this real um, thing that you could not look at. I mean, it was, it was so holy and, and you could not be in this presence of a holy God that you could not see it. But um, in this moment, there are no instructions to cover your eyes. There are no instructions to say not to look at it. And the reason I think that is is because um, the fact that it can now be seen, it indicates that sin has been forgiven and the barrier that was once there to be in the presence of a holy God is now completely removed. So in this moment, when all things have come to be ultimately judged, now we can see the Ark of the Covenant in its fullness. God has brought us in. Now, uh, I think that what the ark is symbolizing here is it's symbolizing uh, God's covenant with his people coming full circle here. It indicates that sin has been forgiven. The barrier, the presence, uh, the barrier between the presence of God and man has now completely been lifted. And it's, a, it's this massive picture that God in the end is going to win. And so when we see the, the hailstorm and the, and the fire and the thunder and all these things, again, this is where I think John is describing um, in these terms this, the enormity of this moment because this is symbolizing the end of all things and the beginning of the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth for eternity. So this is good news. This is good news for us. This is good news because in the end, we know Christ wins. This is good news because we know that there will one day be an end where, where evil is, there's justice and things are judged and ultimately we will reign in eternity with God and the rest of those who are in Christ. But let me minister to you in a, just for a moment. Let me 
speak to what I think is, um, I think, a collective struggle many of us may face. And that's in the midst of the chaos of the world we live in, in the midst of uh, the news cycle 24-7, seeing things that are going on in Ukraine, the threat of nuclear war, the threat of economic collapse, gas prices that are driving everybody crazy. It just seems like people are on edge at the moment. And so I would just ask you, this is just a a question to, to reflect on. As you look inward and are introspective of your own life, what are you experiencing in your soul right now? If I were to ask you, if we were out just having a cup of coffee and I said, hey, what is the state of your soul? How would you answer that question? Are you anxious about anything? Are you anxious about your, your work? Are you stressed out and exhausted with your work or your relationships? Are you worried about your kids? Are you physically, emotionally exhausted? Do you read the news and just feel like, this is too much, I can't handle this, I, I can't, it's, it's just too much to carry the weight of it all? Is there a fear about the future? What are the things that are, you're wrestling with in your soul? I want to offer you four words of encouragement um, that I think this passage gives us, as well as other places in the scriptures. The first is this, we see in 1 Peter, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I believe that Jesus, the one who will reign forever, the one who is in the end, the one victorious, is also the one who is near to you, who sees your anxious thoughts, and in the midst of that, cares. He cares. He's not afraid of them. He doesn't look down on you because of them. He's not ashamed because of what you're feeling. He's not, he's not, he's not mad at you, but rather he cares. He longs for communion with you, to know you. And so we do that. We lay down our anxieties. We are honest before God because we know that God doesn't see those things and it doesn't scare him but rather it actually draws us closer in relationship with him. The second is that our emotions, the things that we're experiencing, things we're wrestling with are valid. What do I mean by that? I remember my my own experience of dealing with a lot of stress and burnout over uh, the last two years between pandemic and school and young family and just all the things I'm wrestling with. I remember so many moments of really, really, really struggling Internally, it felt like if you were to ask me during that season, what is the state of my soul? I'd be like, man, it is, it is like a storm. My soul is like a massive storm right now. And I remember talking to someone who's a, much wiser than me. And I, I remember one of the things he told me during that time as I sort of shared with him what I was wrestling with. He said to me, until you stop trying to numb your feelings of grief and sadness they're going to continue to pull you down deeper into depression. He said, feel your negative emotions and call them out for what they are. They are valid emotions based on what you're experiencing. And the moment you try to numb them with a coping mechanism, whatever that might be, instead of just saying, look, this is what I'm feeling right now and experiencing, and I need to share that with other people, the more we try to cope with it, We do one of two things. Either we repress those things, those feelings, and we don't deal with them and they manifest in other negative ways, or we allow them to control and dictate our life. And so part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to understand that Jesus, the one who experienced the full range of human emotion, 
understood that emotion is a part of what it means to be human. And so here's my encouragement. We lay down our anxieties at the feet of Jesus, but here's what we also do. We also take time to be vulnerable with one another, to tell each other what we're experiencing, to not pretend that everything is good and life is always great. But when we struggle, when we deal with feelings of depression and anxiety, we don't just isolate, but rather we press into community and be honest before each other. How would our community look different if, you know, every time we, we, when we gathered together, if we were honest with one another about life as opposed to always pretending? Number three, ask, what is God trying to teach you in the midst of your struggle? Oftentimes, I believe that in the midst of difficulty, when we wrestle with negative emotions, when we wrestle with negative circumstances, that God is teaching us something new in the midst of it, but also sometimes God is trying to, desperately trying to remind us of something that we already knew, right? Something we knew to be true, but in the midst of a chaos, all we can focus on is the storm in our life, and we miss out on a truth that we've always known to be true. We begin to doubt the things of God. We begin to doubt the moments when God moved in our life. And God is oftentimes trying to remind us of the things of who he's always been and that he is near in the midst of it. And lastly, sometimes anxiety, worry, and fear, we ask God to help us with that, to take it away. We lay it at his feet and sometimes it doesn't go away overnight. Sometimes it doesn't go away for a long period of time. I wish it were that simple. I wish there was a way in which God could just remove all the worry and anxiety from my life. But oftentimes, that's not how God interacts with us. In fact, the Apostle Paul talks about how he asked God to remove a thorn in his flesh three times, and God would not remove it. And then Paul writes this really profound thing. He says, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient in you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest in me. The reality is, is that sometimes it's in our weakest moment of vulnerability that God is able to use us in the most powerful ways. This is why we need each other. This is why we need to do the Christian life in community. Because when we do it alone, when we isolate and we don't press into community, oftentimes uh, we don't have the support that we need. We don't have um, those who are going through similar struggles. And we cannot be a vessel um, to minister to others as well. And so let me just say this in closing. Wherever you are in your, your spiritual journey, whether you're far from God right now, whether um, you've been distant, whether you've, you sense the presence of God in your life often, or whether you're de dealing with anxiety, worry, depression, or fear, Wherever you're at, whether it's fear of the future, fear of nuclear war, fear of whatever might be on your heart and mind, know this to be true. Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he will win and he will reign forever and ever. And that same Jesus who will reign forever is the same Jesus who desires to know what you were struggling with and wants you to know that his presence is available for you and to be with you right here, right now. His presence is with us. The same Jesus sees you in your struggle and he cares. Rest in that. Don't isolate. 
Don't pretend, but be honest before God. Let's pray. God, I pray for whatever uh, burdens people are carrying today, whatever weight we feel like we have on our back, whatever anxiety or fear that we find crippling in our life, Father, we take all these things and we lay them at your feet. Knowing only you can do the things that you can do, the way in which you can heal, the way in which you can bring wholeness. And Lord, we know that sometimes this, this, doesn't, this is not a quick fix. There's no way to, to sort of uh, just change things immediately sometimes. But we remain steadfast. And we trust in your beautiful name that yes, indeed, one day in the end you will reign and rule. But in the meantime, Lord, we want to submit every area of our life to you. Our struggles, our fears, our doubts, our anxieties, our addictions, all of them, Lord, we lay them at your feet. We ask for your healing. We ask for your presence, Holy Spirit. It's for your beautiful name. Amen.